Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Saudi Aramco is again gearing up for its long-awaited initial public offering. What are some of the challenges the global oil company might face? No one has any idea what's going to happen with oil demand, and that just makes it quite difficult for investors to try to price oil reserves. And why a happy workforce may be the secret to success. It doesn't sound complicated now, but it was really a, a light bulb moment, and I took a microscope and a knife to my business and really rebuilt it from the ground up. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Simon Long, a senior editor here at The Economist. First, HSBC plans to restructure its business following a disappointing performance in Europe and the United States. HSBC's Asian business remains the driving force behind the company's profits. But its third quarter results show the bank struggling in Europe and America. Its newly appointed interim chief executive, Noel Quinn, responded to the poor performance in a call on Monday. It is clear that while we have many parts of our portfolio that are performing well, we also have parts where the performance is not acceptable. It is now clear that our previous plans for both businesses are no longer sufficient given the softer revenue outlook that we now face. I'm joined by The Economist's finance correspondent, Mathieu Favard who's here to tell us more about how the bank plans to respond to the challenges it's facing. First of all, Mathieu, I mean, how bad were these results? They were relatively shocking, actually, yes, you could say, because even though analysts did not expect, you know, sparkling results, these results managed to disappoint analysts in quite a bad way. So if you look just at... Profit. But it's still making a profit, right? They still made a profit, that's for sure. But um, profits were down 24%, so nearly a quarter, and they were 14% below what analysts expected. Asia held up pretty well, but um, they made a loss in Europe. Uh, the U.S. was not great. Their revenue also was down like a bit more than 2%, which was 2% below what analysts expected. And the return on tangible equity, which is one of the favorite ways to measure profitability, was at 6.4%, which was also far below expectations, at, uh, which were at 9%. You say Asian business has held up quite well, which I suppose is a bit surprising. I mean, the clues in the name, Hong Kong, Shanghai, we associate it with Asian business. And Asia, particularly its original home of Hong Kong, things have not been going very well. It is quite surprising. It's pretty good news for the bank because the bank makes nearly 90% of its profit in Asia. But like most banks, actually, most of its peers in Hong Kong, it's not been affected yet by the troubles there very much. But that could easily change. Uh, first, because you could have quality deteriorating as economic activity uh, slows down. And second, because it is likely that if the economy slows down significantly, interest rates will be lowered, which will um, dense the margin of the bank. But how about China, more broadly speaking? That must also be an important market for what was once the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. 
and there the economy is growing much less fast than it was. That's an issue for the bank uh, because obviously it constrains the level of activity it itself can do. And China is a, an important market for HSBC. Um, the issue for HSBC is not just the economy, though, for China. It's the fact that recently it seems to have upset the authorities there, um, potentially because it played a role in the arrest of one of the big executives, the CFO of Huawei, a big Chinese technology company. The founder's daughter, right? Yes, absolutely, yes. I see. But let's turn to where its real problems are, though. the United States and Europe, you say. I mean, what's going wrong there? You can look at the different businesses of the bank. So if you start by investment banking, for example, more uncertainty caused by Brexit and the trade wars and the slowing economy means that there's fewer transactions being made, you know, fewer bonds, equities to be transacted. If you look at trade finance, again, uh, HSBC is the largest uh, provider of trade finance in the world. Slowing trade is bad news. And in general, there's a lot of liquidity around, a lot of money um, looking for a home to be invested or to be lent. And that means that margins have been pressured. And finally, interest rates are really low, even negative in some countries. And that, again, is pressuring margins for most banks. Now, Noel Quinn has spoken of remodeling the bank, which sounds quite potentially drastic. Do we know really what he has in mind? I mean, the obvious inference from what you're saying is that the bank would be withdrawing resources from Europe and America and moving them eastwards. Yes, it's very interesting that he used this language, which is quite strong. You know, all the, all the analysts I spoke to were, were very surprised by this language. Um, his plan is twofold. Uh, the first prong, you could say, is to cut costs more aggressively, so to shed more jobs, to try and divest some businesses. Um, but is HSBC a, a notably fat bank in that sense? Are its costs higher than it, its peers? Well, we hear that often, but analysts are very divided about that. So some, you know, some people I spoke to say, yes, there is some low-hanging fruit that we can probably take away. But a few others actually said, well, the bank's not that bloated, you know, and um, there's already been a number of cost savings and in fact, in August, the bank announced that it would get rid of 4,700 jobs. And this is to be completed by the end of the year. So, you know, they could cut more jobs. But indeed, you have to wonder whether there's so much fat that you can still take away. Just to give a sense of the scale of this, how many people does the bank employ worldwide? So that's 238,000. So, you know, the figures that we're hearing at the moment are maybe uh, another 8,000 to 10,000 jobs that could go. Uh, that's quite a lot for a bank that size. Okay, and what's the second prong? The second prong is to reallocate uh, capital that is not producing good returns to places where it could produce better returns. Asia, presumably. Asia, presumably. But again, there are some places. China, at the moment, is, is, it's not obvious that you will be able to get in uh, to very deeply and very quickly. Uh, the rest of Asia, for sure, is profitable for the bank. But it's already very exposed, you know, in Asia. So there's only so much more, I suppose, it can reallocate to Asia. And then other countries within Asia that it's not very present in, so say Vietnam or, uh, or Thailand, are not that big in comparison you know, to China or even India. It sounds from what you're saying, Mathieu, as if your reporting has led you to quite a gloomy view of the bank's prospects. It sounds gloomy. Uh, the bank is relatively resilient. You know, you, you can see, as you said, it's still making profit. So at this stage, you couldn't label this as a disaster in the making. But... It is true that um, what these results show probably is that what's in question is not so much the cycle we're in or short-term events that could be easily reversed. It's more the model of the bank. And uh, 
you know, HSBC prides itself in being the first global bank with local roots. But maybe that's actually a problem. By trying to be everything to everyone, everywhere, um, it ends up diluted. Thank you very much. Next, after years of delay, Saudi Arabia looks set to push forward with its plans to list the state-owned oil giant Saudi Aramco on the stock market. The idea was first announced by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in 2016, when it was thought the company would be valued at about $2 trillion. And though today's estimates are well below that hefty target, the IPO could still be the largest of all time. But Aramco faces challenges. In September, production of almost 6 million barrels of oil a day was halted after a massive missile attack on its facilities blamed on Iran. Charlotte Howard is The Economist's energy and commodities editor, and she joins me on the line from New York. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Simon. Now, I understand you've been visiting uh, Aramco in Saudi Arabia. How do they explain this long delay since that announcement back in 2016? Well, the company itself, on the record, doesn't like to give specific explanations for why the IPO has been delayed, but there have been many reasons for the delay. So to start, there's been and continues to be much disagreement over the valuation of the company. So Mohammed bin Salman, as you mentioned, has said that he would like a valuation of up to $2 trillion. Most independent analysts think that the actual valuation would be much below that. And then there are additional concerns that may have delayed the listing, such as uh, fear that listing in New York might open the company to legal liability. Um, last year, there was huge uproar over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. And a year ago, it seemed unlikely that uh, an IPO would proceed at all. And then much has changed, actually, in the past year to help move the IPO forward. Well, it is surprising in a way, isn't it, that it is going ahead now so soon after that massive attack on the facilities last month. Uh, you'd expect that to be a further cause for delay. So if you look at what's happened in the past year, there have been a few things to help accelerate the IPO. For one, in March, Aramco announced that it would buy Sabic, which is a huge petrochemical company that to date has been owned by the Kingdom's Sovereign Wealth Fund. To raise money for that transaction, it issued $12 billion in bonds in April, including in that process publishing a 489-page bond prospectus. And Aramco had historically been nervous about letting the world sort of pour over its books. But that bond prospectus was uh, very happily read by investors around the world who lapped up those $12 billion in bonds. And so the bond offering was seen as a big success, and it made Aramco and the kingdom more comfortable with the idea of welcoming international investors. And then over the summer is when things really started to speed up with momentum building towards an IPO. So in August, the company had its first ever earnings call. In early September, the government announced that the chairman of Aramco would be replaced by the head of the Sovereign Wealth Fund, and they also announced a new oil minister. And then you had these attacks on September 14th. Um, and the company has worked very hard to try to convince the world that you know it has the matter in hand, it can very quickly resume production with speedy repairs, and that it is a reliable supplier of crude to the world. But as you say, it was a factor that has helped sow a bit of uncertainty about the precise timing of the IPO this year. 
Now, you mentioned that most analysts thought that $2 trillion target was on the high side. But I also thought that there was a certain question of face involved that Mohammed bin Salman and, and others did not want to drop it because it would be uh, embarrassing to do so. I mean, have they actually formally done that or do they have a new target figure in mind? There's not an explicit new target that I am aware of. Part of what happened in the past month is that the company was planning to have an IPO around October 20th and then delayed. And the reason for that delay was supposedly because the kingdom wanted to publish third quarter results after the international oil majors did, which would presumably highlight just how dominant Aramco can be given its size and its very low costs, that even in an environment of low oil prices, as we've had recently, Aramco can still make a very enviable um, profit, which would help to boost the value of the company. But there continues to be a lot of disagreement over how to value the company. And you see the government taking steps to try to support the valuation. So those include seeking out local investors and trying to ensure that local demand for the listing is high, which will then hopefully push the valuation up. But at this point, it's not clear what the valuation of the company will end up being. And indeed, even though it seems very likely that an IPO, an intention to float, will be announced in the next few weeks, probably in early November, there still is a chance that the thing could be delayed or even fall apart. Because in the end, this really does come down to what the prince decides he wants to do. How will Aramco compare with other oil majors out there, other publicly traded oil majors? It will be bigger than all of them. Yes. So it will be bigger than all of them by a very long way, um, both in the amount of oil it produces each year and its extraordinary reserves. So it has a reserve life of 52 years, which is a multiple of the sort of usually nine to 15 years for an international oil major. But beyond its size, what differentiates Aramco is its very low costs. So the cost of lifting oil out of the ground for Aramco is just $2.80. And that is a fraction of the cost for an international oil company. And so that's what makes it more resilient in the face of low oil prices. And that's why the crown prince and others within the kingdom think it deserves such a high valuation. And that fossil fuels are, as it were, unfashionable at the moment because of climate change worries is of little concern to investors when they look at a company with such a low cost base? Well, there are a few problems that face Aramco, and that's one of the things that makes the company so interesting, which is that it's a the undisputed titan of the oil industry. At the same time, it's plagued by a variety of problems, both that are specific to Aramco and that are problems for the broader oil sector. So the specific problems are that it has very low costs and huge reserves, but those reserves are concentrated. And you see the risk of that when you have an attack like those that came in September, where you have hostile neighbors that can wipe out production. Um, it also is very closely tied with the kingdom and the kingdom of Saudi Arabia has a shaky economy and there's a fear among investors that if 
Mohammed bin Salman's plan to transform Saudi Arabia's economy doesn't go exactly as planned, that there will be changes in policies in the dividend policy and the tax rate that would weigh on Aramco. That's something that the company and the kingdom contest, but nevertheless, it is a fear among investors. And then there's the broader sector-wide issue, which is that the oil price is low because investors are worried about the prospect of recession and that having a dampening impact on demand. And then there's just the issue that no one has any idea what's going to happen with oil demand in the long term. So if you look at forecasts for long-term oil demand, they're just all over the map where you have some entities and some forecasters uh, saying that oil demand will rise unabated basically through 2050. And then you have others who try to forecast different scenarios in which the world becomes serious about climate change and passes climate regulations, in which case demand for oil might ebb. And there's not really any clarity on whether oil demand might ebb if it does when it happens. And that just makes it quite difficult for investors to try to price long-dated oil reserves. It's one of the reasons why uh, energy companies as a whole have been sort of out of favor among generalist investors, is that investors don't really know what to do with these big companies that have very long-term projects. And Aramco has the longest-term projects of all. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Thank you. And you can find out more about Aramco's plans to go public in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. So why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And finally, many businesses believe that the adage, the customer is always right, is the secret to success. But could keeping staff happy play a much bigger part in helping businesses thrive. That's what Julian Richer of the firm Richer Sounds believes. He started his career selling refurbished turntables at school and turned it into an electronics business with over 50 stores in Britain. His tactics? Offering employee benefits like holiday homes and bonuses if they have to take phone calls on their days off. For his column a few weeks ago, our Bartleby columnist Philip Coggan spoke to Julian about the way he runs his company. And he started by asking him where he got the idea to do things differently. So the whole people interaction I always felt was important. I opened the first shop with one other guy, you know, and I had to do everything. As we got going a bit, obviously usual mistakes when you start a business, I read a book called In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters and Roger Waterman. And they analysed lots of businesses and they discovered the common characteristics of successful businesses was that they treated their staff well and they treated their customers well. It doesn't sound complicated now, but it was really a, a light bulb moment. And I took a microscope and a knife to my business and really rebuilt it from the ground up there. And we had probably half a dozen shops at that point and the profits took off, which was wonderful. But I really believed in what I was doing. I thought it was the right thing to do and I sort of felt I'd arrived. So how did you treat your customers and staff differently when you changed your philosophy from before? 
I've been doing this 40 years from the age of 19 since I had the first shop to I was 60 early this year. I've learned a lot of things. I guess the overriding thing I've learned is that there are two completely different outputs one can observe in people depending on how one treats them. And reading in search of excellence really opened my eyes to that. And then you know, the companies they analyzed were huge organizations and corporations. So I had to take the formula and build it accordingly and to come up with a bespoke version for us. But typically, there are sort of five components to my theory of motivating people. And I subsequently wrote a book about it. So the first one is work should be fun. I'm not suggesting my colleagues whistle to work every day, but it makes a difference if they enjoy what they do. We have our holiday homes. We have 12 holiday homes that we're proud of. And over 70% of our entire workforce use at least one holiday home per year. They use them rent-free and they just pay a small amount towards the benefit in kind which they're taxed on in this country. Secondly, I think recognition is very important. Saying well done and thank you to employees is something even I don't do as often as I should, of course. Naturally, bosses find fault. So I think we should all try and do more of that. Thirdly, we should communicate with our people and we should listen to what they've got to say, particularly if they're not happy and particularly if they've got good ideas for the business. Let's use them. Uh, The fourth component is rewarding what we want to achieve. So many businesses want great customer service, but they reward sales, and therefore employers are best confused by that. It's not clear. So we believe we want our people to have great service. We make sure we reward great service as well. And the fifth one is loyalty. You know, when the chips are down, if the employer is there for you, it means a lot. And in terms of treating the customers differently, you're saying by focusing on customer service rather than sales, it's not kind of high-pressure tactics. Absolutely. So I always tell my people we want customers for life. Now, that might mean telling them, don't buy that today, sir or madam. It's not the right thing for you or save a bit more money or spend less money because actually you don't need to spend that much. And the loyalty that brings us is fantastic. I meet people all the time. I tell them what I do and they tell me of an experience they had when one of my uh, colleagues did just that. So this concern for customers' loyalty long term or, or wanting, you know, really caring about them and setting ethically. I know it sounds a bit weird from a capitalist, but I believe if we're honest with our people and give great service, you're unassailable, particularly if you combine it with value for money as well. Great. And then, having made a success of Richard Sounds, you started becoming a consultant at bigger companies. So Asda is one that you feel you had a particular effect. We live outside York in Yorkshire, and a friend of mine said, I want to bring this guy to Sabah who's just moved up here. And it turned out he was Archie Norman, who'd just been given the job of running Asda in 91. And I just talked and talked about what I believed in, and he took a lot of notes. At the end of it, he said, would you come and have lunch with the board? And I said, yeah, sure. And then they asked me to advise them, you know, to work with them on the people stuff, which I really enjoy, which is cultural change, staff motivation, customer service. And I found it really, really interesting that all my ideas, the five areas I've just mentioned, were really relevant to what they did, even though the workforce was completely different. So as you mentioned, you've reached the very distinguished age of 60. And you made a big decision earlier this year to sell 60% of your holding in the company. Now, you did it in an unusual way. Can you talk me through how you did that? So my father dropped down dead at 60. And I have a wonderful wife, but she will admit she's not madly commercial. And she was nervous about me predeceasing her. And what would happen? Because as you know, the banks get twitchy, the credit insurers get twitchy when the founder snuffs it. So uh, I decided it was time to transfer 
ownership of the business to an employee ownership trust. So I could have sold the business, which I didn't want to do. And so far, I'm really pleased I did it. So I've transferred 60%. And yes, there's a payment. I've had an initial payment already. And the rest I've deferred for a very long time, over 15 years. So only if the company is successful and can afford it will I get more money. I don't need the money, thank God. I've got more than I need. And I gave, I think, about 40% of it straight back to my colleagues as a celebratory thank you uh, bonus. And they each received £1,000 for each year of service, which made them very happy. (laughs) It's an unusual example. And you feel that this approach of ethical capitalism, you know, could apply more broadly, treat people well and good results will flow to the company, essentially. Exactly. I really do think that. First of all, I sleep better at night. I think it's the right thing to do. But my business has prospered. I absolutely believe that because I treat myself well and my customers well. And I think all stakeholders, we pay our suppliers on time. It's not rocket science. If you pay them on time, you're going to get more deals from them. So I think that's absolutely recommended for business to do that in a voluntary capacity. But I think the state needs to get firmer with those that don't. So this responsible capitalism platform is one I'm really proud to be involved with. I think it's terribly important. I think businesses have a debt to society. They're obliged to pay back you know, the benefits they've received. And I think the state needs to get much tougher with those that don't see that uh, obligation. Julian Richer, founder of Richer Sounds, thanks for coming in. You're very welcome. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. I'm Simon Long, a happy employee. But of course, your happiness matters much more, so don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. In London, this is The Economist.